Hey, it's Mitch Goldman, and you're at Deep Focus, and this is the start of a little subchapter here of the history of Deep Focus. In October of 2013, Ronald Shannon Jackson passed away. Uh, one of the, I say this over and over, referring to the subjects of the show as one of the greats. Well, he really was, and uh, he was... He's a musician's favorite. He's one of my favorites. And uh, he personally was a big shaping influence on me and what became my life and career trajectory. Uh, and um, a lot of the guests that you hear on the show and a lot of my personal friends, a lot of my musical heroes are people who came through his band, the Decoding Society. So we did four sort of memorial broadcast um, deep focus programs around the time of his passing. And we're going to hear, this is the first one tonight. It's going to be in two parts. And the guests were Eric Person, who's fantastic. You know Eric, saxophonist, band leader, frequent deep focus guest. The other, Roger Kramer, who was Shannon Jackson's manager through in the early 80s uh, time of the albums Barbecue Dog and Man Dance. And um, so this episode, it's just two days after the passing of Shannon Jackson, October 21st of 2013. The music that we played on the show was music that's commercially released, and I generally do not play that on the program. Um, so instead, I'm going to play an archival recording, a live recording, one of the many standing astounding things about this band is the level that it reached in live performance and the ability these musicians had to communicate with one another musically is just unmatched and there are very few good recordings of the band playing live and this is one of the few so we're going to play a few tracks from this recording made in chicago I think it was 1982. It's listed here as 1983. I'm gonna play a few just to give you some music. Some this is archival recording, um, and then you'll hear the interview with Roger and Eric. It's kind of wordy, uh, and, and I'm gonna pull the music tracks out of that uh, their conversation because it's um, not stuff that's uh, viable to play in this format. But um, if you're a fan or you're curious you might want to listen and check it out uh it's in two parts and i'm going to play the balance of this concert at the end of part two so you're going to put a little chunk here at the beginning of part one balance at the end of part two of this program from october 13th no october 21st of 2013 eric person and roger kramer there's going to be another three-hour episode next week with melvin gibbs another one the following week with Jack DeSalvo, another one the following week with Vernon Reed, all of whom played with Shannon Jackson. And all of these programs were recorded in the last part of 2013 in the wake of Shannon's passing. So um, here you go. So there's going to be uh, some music from this live performance in Grant Park in Chicago. And then this interview from the memorial broadcast with Eric Person and Roger Kramer. It's Deep Focus. Let's set a music. Let's set a rather set of music.
guest tonight. My name is Mitch Goldman, and I'm always happy to introduce Eric Person on the airwaves. It's a little different uh, circumstance from our usual broadcast. We're usually here at 6 o'clock celebrating some music that we love. We're doing that tonight, but we're also marking the passing of a giant of the music, a drummer, composer, band leader, Ronald Shannon Jackson, and uh, somebody who was a very important part of my life and of your life and uh it's a lot of uh a lot wrapped up in this for us tonight mm-hmm. and um mostly we're just uh, we're sharing the information about uh, shannon's passing on saturday at the age of 73 and we are celebrating the music and we're remembering a uh a, a huge influence in our lives yeah i mean you know uh I was when I joined Shannon. You know, I was I was only two years in into new my life in New York, almost two years. Not even not even total, but it was like uh, uh, two years and eleven months. Mm-hmm. No, one one year and eleven months. Right. That's what it was. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, I, I it was I was so excited about having the opportunity. I, I always looked at it as a a big opportunity to grow and you know, do some of the things I hadn't done in New York yet, you know, record and, you know, tour. And uh, so it, it did turn out to be that way for me. You know, I I, I got the gig by, uh, it's funny, you know. Uh, How did you get that gig? <laughs> How did you get that gig? Well, it, it happened in two ways. Um, uh, the chair opened up because Zane Massey had some problems uh, in, in with his health. You know, he had broke his jaw. And uh, or got his jaw broken, let's just say. Yeah. And um, so I, I remember uh, probably when at some point, you know, maybe I'll just say six months before I, I, I got the, 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 to play with Shannon, work with the band, and, and before Zane's uh, accident was um, I went down to Small's Paradise up in, uh-huh. in, in Harlem, and I sat in with uh, this violin player who I'd never met. Uh, 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 his name was Akbar Ali. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he was working with Shannon, uh, and uh, the other saxophonist on the job was uh, Joe Ford. You know, wow. Yeah, Joe. You know, I, I knew Joe from. Oh, on the on the gig with uh, with, with Akbar. Akbar. Yeah. Right. So he was playing some of you know Akbar's originals. They called me up to the stage to sit in and uh and and to play <laughs> one or two of Akbar's songs that which I never played before, but uh, I did and um, the results were pretty good. You know, and and so you know when the when the chair opened up. You know, he said that he referred me to Shannon and that, you know, he, he didn't think of anybody before me. You know, it was almost like it's your job, you know. Don't blow take it. it. Yeah, you know. <laughs> so um, so I went down there and it was... It was when you uh, say down there, did you go to the music building? Yeah, the music business building on 8th Avenue. Shannon had a rehearsal space for many years. Yeah, yeah exactly. So, 
came down there and I started playing some of the, you know playing some of the music and, and was this just you and Shannon or it was me Shannon Akbar it was nobody else so it was like I'm not hearing no chords I'm not hearing no bass lines I was like what is this right and was he throwing lead sheets in front of you or yeah I mean you know Shannon always had his very loose way of writing things and uh, I can't remember if they were new songs I would I was playing at the time but uh, you know we made our way through it. Uh, but I do remember uh, after either after that rehearsal or before I got the gig, I think it was before I got the gig, I went down to J&R Music and bought the Man Dance uh, 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 cassette. Ah, uh, yeah. And I was listening to it, and I was just like, what is this? I, 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 it was Talk way- about that. What, what, did it, how, <laughs> what struck you about it? How did it strike you? I, I, it, was, it was just, it was like a barrage of sound, you know, because his drums are very upfront. Um, you know, uh, you know, the Henry Scott's playing way up there, so it's, it sounds trumpet, yeah, yeah, it sounds kind of otherworldly. You know, you're hearing banjo in there. You know, it, you're hearing two basses stuff coming here in the left channel and the right channel. So it's it's a lot of stuff going on, and and for my ears, you know, coming uh, being new to New York, and I had never heard that. So I was, it, it just kind of, I think I. I think I was disappointed. I think I was like, I don't think, mm, man, I'm not feeling this. This is out. Uh-huh. You know, and what kind of stuff were you listening to? What was your, your uh, like main thing? Oh, I mean, I, I was into McCoy, Tyner, Coltrane. I was into, you know, maybe not the most outest, outest stuff, but you know, I I did like a lot of modal stuff. You know, the Miles Davis uh, uh, quintet stuff. You know, so I had ears. But it was just like, this was just so, it was a new energy. You know, I think that's more, a better way to put it. It was just like different. It was a barrage of sound. And it was, and so, but I, you know, I always, uh, after I listened to it, I listened to it more, I would hear, it, it would start opening up to me. And, you know, so when I went into the rehearsals, you know, it was, uh, things started getting better once the rhythm section came. Yeah. And then it started making more sense to me because really, like a lot of Shannon's melodies are like uh, are like tone rolls in a way. Yeah. And How, not, maybe describe the describe what mm-hmm. what you saw. What was what he throw at you? He just had a whole bunch of half notes and whole notes. <laughs> right. Right. No, yeah. as I I I never saw like measure marks mm-hmm. or any. There was it, what you didn't have a key signature. No. No. It was all chromatic and it was uh, more or less. You know, f- he might have it more like rubato. Uh, a lot of the melodies going over whatever he was playing, his his rhythms and stuff. And then the the bass line might be an ostinato repeating. Um, and then uh, you know we're we're playing the melody, and then as we play it more and more, he might he might make a suggestion like, "Hey, why don't y'all try to?" But a lot of those melodies, when I came in the band, we crafted them you know, rhythmically to make more sense, you know. Um, he left it up to us, really. And um, that 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 allowed it to have us to have more input, you know. And I was talking to Kerry DeNegris today who played uh, guitar with Shannon for quite a while. He, he, and he's on that recording we just heard. Yeah, exactly. He, um, you know, he, he was given uh, the freedom to um, put his own chords in, like, Shannon didn't have that working harmonic knowledge, so he left 
a lot of room for Carrie to create, you know, those chords and us to kind of shape the melodies over what he was doing. So it, it's hard to think of a guitar player more different from Vernon Reed's approach, who Car- mm-hmm. had been made his mark in the band before Carrie, and then Carrie takes it in a whole other w- direction. Mm-hmm. Zane Massey had his style. You came in with mm-hmm. something completely different. Yeah. But it's still the Decoding Society somehow. Uh, you know, it's, if you listen to those records like uh, Man Dance and Barbecue Dog, that, that sounds like a period. You know, those guys, they had, all those guys, they had their sound. It was like real, it was real edgy and it was like, uh, it was it was like more, uh uh, shaped in a way, and then when we kind of came in, it was it was almost like we were flowing over the rhythm, you know. And so, um, it, if you listen to the records, like when I came in the band, it's like it's like a whole new set of uh, another sound, you know. And some of that probably had something to do with Akbar, sure. You know the long, long phrases violin, with yeah. the violin. Long Although home. he was not the first violinist in that band either. That uh, mm-hmm. Billy yeah. Bangs on right. earlier records yeah. and yeah, so. But uh, I'm curious. Let's talk about that. If you remember from that first session when you first met Shannon and you walk into the studio and he's there with that ginormous drum kit and uh, hmm. you remember anything he said to you about either about the music or anything else? Um, I mean, it's been a. Yeah. A little minute. You'd be it'd be excusable if you didn't happen to have any recollections. But I'm curious about you know if he gave you some instructions or um, how I, he sized you up or anything. Mm-hmm. No, he was he was he was real cool. I mean, it was I don't re, I don't I you know what I don't remember any pressure. You know, so it was like he was giving me a chance to uh, learn obviously what they were playing and then maybe even some new stuff. But I remember I learned about 14 songs, you know. So it was a lot of songs that I had to memorize. Because he was like, yeah, we don't, we don't read music on stage. So it was like, I was cramming, man. Because, you know, what it was, we had the uh, Midwest tour that I was uh, being introduced to. The, uh, and this is when? Yeah. Oh, this is April of uh, uh, 84. Right. Yeah. So, um, and I remember that succinctly because uh, when I got to meet everybody at like five in the morning or something. They was everybody was like, Hey man, did you hear that uh uh Marvin Gaye died, man, his oh, father yeah. killed him. That was a, that was a, May first, I wanna yeah. say. Mm-hmm. May first, yeah. Eighty four. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So yeah. um it was it, it was a lot of stuff in the air, you know, obviously, yeah. but um Yeah. Uh, um cool. who was uh, who was the band at that point? Oh, it was um, it was Reverend Bruce Johnson on bass, Vernon Reed on guitar, obviously Shannon on drums, myself on saxophones, and then Akbar on violin. Mm-hmm. And our first gig was uh, up in Al- Ann Arbor. Uh huh. Yeah. So we drove up there, and uh, I remember I remember like this was my first tour, <laughs> so uh, uh, I brought a suitcase. Right. And we were going to be gone 14 days. I had 14 pairs of pants. I had 14 <laughs> pairs of uh, uh, shirts. That you probably know. sounds normal to mm-hmm. a lot of people. <laughs> but to a touring musician. Yeah. Not happening. It was, my, my suitcase was heavy, boy. 
Yeah, that's the that is the mark of the newbie. Yeah. On tour. Yeah. Fourteen fourteen <laughs> shirts, fourteen pants. <laughs> I would have brought fourteen shoes if I could. Right. <laughs> but uh no, it was it Yeah, was, by the time you know it's funny you say that because I remember like you know, you could you could really judge people how long they've been mm-hmm. at this by the size of their bag. <laughs> Zane had like a briefcase, <laughs> <laughs> like his toothpaste, and he's yeah. set. Let's go. Yeah, 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 <laughs> uh-huh. yeah. So, but yeah, I mean, it was, it was, it was, and then it was off to the races. I mean, but it was, it was a, it was a energy man to that music. And I remember that that, that gig that we played at in Ann Arbor it was like the place was packed. It was like, and it was a lot of young people. That's what made it like really hip I was like man this place is crowded it's yeah, young a, people it's a huge college town yeah yeah so that was that was another thing like I think we we went to quite a few college places that that had that same kind of thing going on so it's cool and um I'm curious about you started talking about how these arrangements came out because these songs are so fleshed out but in such a different way from mm-hmm. any other band you know i mean it's really it's a instantly recognizable through mm. generations of different musicians coming through the band but there's this sound that uh it's it's much more than this piece that we just heard march of the pink wallflowers is a perfect example shannon jackson we're remembering tonight uh got tagged with all these silly uh, rubrics of you know avant-garde this or that right this music's very structured but it doesn't I'm not a musician but it doesn't sound like it's structured in a conventional way mm. but it doesn't sound like it's uh, you know a un- sprawling improv or something mm-hmm. no you know what it is it's like he 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 would come up with his melodies on that flute that he would be playing whether it's that bass flute or you know regular C flute and so he he would probably sing that in his head and then he would come up with his drum beat and then uh when the rhythm section came they were building their part after hearing that you know so each you know it's like layers you know that's instead of a guy you know coming up with the melody and the chords at the same time like on a piano mm-hmm. so this had like a, a natural layer uh effect in a sense you know and 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 so for some people, that's avant-garde to them. You know, if it's not like just a real basic, you know, swing beat or something like that with the bass walking that they that has its own place, uh, uh, it's very, I'll just say it's basic. You know, you know, you know, they're in tandem with each other moving forward. But this had a, a way of like, Sometimes stuff like mashed against other things in in in, in different ways. It, it was very vivid, you know. It was, it was very. Uh, it, it was a different way of uh, composing, but it it was band based. So it kind of you know. There's a lot of things about it when you start talking about yeah. it. It sounds like the way people talk about the way Duke Ellington mm-hmm. did things and composed for the members of that band yeah. and yeah. and structured things. Definitely. with them mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, yeah I mean because everybody every person who came in had the ability to have input in how that song was going to be uh, uh, 
composed, not just played, but composed in a sense. Because sometimes it would be like we would be, uh, uh, he would present the melody and then we would do something one day and he would come back and he would be like, no, nah, let's, let's try this on that B section and we would, we would do something totally different, you know? And, and like, that's one of the good things that Carrie brought is that he had a really strong harmonic knowledge. So, uh, one of these rec, Oh, you know, I know what it is. <laughs> uh, yeah. on this record, um, uh, Texas that yeah. we did, um, one oh yeah charming the beast yes yes that song is so funny yeah it, it maybe we'll play it yeah but it's so it, it's it's outside of the norm of Shannon songs because of somebody like Carrie you know yeah. introducing like uh, a very basic kind of uh, progression you know something that might be considered traditional jazz let's say you know and it'd be right in on a song like that so everybody was composing. That know? was the funny thing to me, one of the many interesting ways of me trying to find my way into understanding this music. Mm-hmm. You know, I would hear it and you think, first of all, there's just something incredibly uh, how attuned these people on stage are. I mean, I don't know if you had a sense of that, but to sit in the audience mm-hmm. and see and hear that band play, there was some immediate like mm-hmm. hive mind thing going on that was <laughs> stunning mm-hmm. and you might think from that that like well these guys all must speak the s- same language somehow mm-hmm. and then to get to know you guys in here you know at soundcheck well, Carrie's playing like some West Montgomery licks you know and, mm-hmm. and Henry Scott talking to him and he's like all about Lee Morgan and some mm-hmm. other thing that seems completely apart from this mm-hmm. and yet there's a way that it all comes together on stage. Yeah. Who's yeah. interviewing who here? No. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we are. If you're just joining us, um, we have the uh, a terrible burden of sharing some very, what's to us, very sad news. Uh, Ronald Shannon Jackson's passing on uh, just day before yesterday, on Saturday, at age 73, he'd had leukemia. He had been uh, fighting that since January, and it seemed like uh, there might be some uh, breakthrough. Yeah, some some sunlight ahead, and uh, it took a rapid turn for the worst, and uh, and he died on on Saturday. And uh, this is a memorial broadcast. We'll be on the air with you till eight twenty tomorrow morning, playing nothing but his music. I have the great good fortune of having Eric Person, who is part of a lot of his great music here in the studio tonight. My name is Mitch Goldman, and I was a very close friend and supporter of this group for many years. And um, so it's just a very personal thing for Eric and for me. And um, Eric's hmm. being very generous with some insights and understanding about hmm. uh, a, a truly <laughs> this music, one of the things that draws us into this music and makes it so compelling is some huge and outsized and magnificent characters and people of spectacular imagination and daring and and flights of incredible imagination and to bear witness to that is a is a stunning thing that you don't find everywhere mm-hmm. in day-to-day life 
And I just can't think of anybody who um, manifested that more than Shannon. And the way that you're describing him, it's a huge part of my definition of the word genius. I don't know if that word even has any specific meaning. Maybe it does. Maybe I just don't know what it is. But you describe the way he puts these things together in such a very straightforward, organic way from the materials that are at hand mm-hmm. and um, comes up with something incredibly beautiful that didn't exist and wouldn't exist other than that. And it seems, to me, it makes doing something as conventional as what you were saying, like, well, there's a, an organized way of doing this. The piano <laughs> player's supposed to do this. bass player's supposed to do that. And it just uh, has a way of making all of that seem antiquated and mm-hmm. and lacking i mean to me i don't know it's it's a uh, it's just this music just had such a a mighty force about it well i mean the thing is i've, I've always believed in collaboration so um i think it was a like i mentioned a collaborative effort that um that sometimes brings out the best music, you know, because I mean, look at Miles Davis. His 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 greatest efforts were all collaborative, you know. Uh, even the the second great quintet, you know, all that music was collaborated with, you know, uh, him being free enough to let Wayne bring all this spectacular mu- music in, and and it's like his spirit kind of, you know, allowed it to happen, you know. And so I mean. And Shannon so, was a great admirer of Miles Davis. Oh, of course, yeah. Uh, uh, so, I mean, the thing is, it, that generosity uh, was definitely in Shannon's music where he allowed us to, you know, shape what he was doing, you know, and let us have our flights of fancy with our solos and stuff like that. So, you know, it was, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's rare, you know, to be able to have uh, that experience with, you know, uh, a leader that allows you to do that. That's, that's what I've always tried to translate in what I was doing with my own bands, you know, letting people feel free to give all of themselves, you know. And I've, I've even asked musicians like, hey, you know, or drum, let's just say rhythm section players. I, I would ask them, i say, you know, what is it like working with, um, you know, uh, some other musicians, you know, like do sometimes do people get into this thing where they're, telling you exactly what to play and and they, and they and they would be like yeah you know it could be pretty bad you know from people telling you how to exactly play on something you know uh, to uh play like that guy played it you know or that guy on that record played right, it right. you know and um you know so that's very frustrating for a rhythm section player who's creative now if they're not creative then they they enjoy that. Oh, you want me to play like that? Okay, yeah, I'm good, Anna. You know, <laughs> yeah. that's sort I of have thing. that same symbol. He's got. <laughs> exactly. Hold you on, know. Let me go get it. Yeah, but um, uh, a lot of times I've felt that because I wasn't like that. You know, they felt better. They felt like they could let their hair down. And so, you know, working with someone like Shannon, he was naturally like that. You know, and he brought some of the best things about the avant-garde to that group. I was listening to, uh, uh, let me see, what's the record? Oh yeah, Barbecue Dog. Yeah, and I was just like, I was listening to some of that stuff, and I was just like, 
like you said the other day on Facebook, in a perfect world, this would be pop. Right. <laughs> you right. Know? Yeah. Somebody, somebody referred to that. Uh, uh, decode to, yourself. To decode yourself is yeah. This was Shannon's most pop record, and yeah. Well, whose idea of pop? Okay, I'll take yeah. that as pop music. Yeah. yeah. But um, we're we we're very fortunate. We're surrounded by all these great recordings that Shannon left us, and um, I have a special assignment for Ajua. If you uh, show her Texas. I'm wondering if maybe there's a CD of this album in here that you might find. I don't know if we have the CDs here, but uh, take a look. Tell me if you see them there, because we should play. Charming the Beast would be a great thing to play. Mm -hmm. Take a look. Before we get to that, let me ask you about specifically being on the bandstand and the power of Shannon's drumming, power and imagination and Mm -hmm. everything else. Good question. Um, now, Shannon plays some very large drums. For those who don't know, he played, uh, uh, he had an endorsement with Sonar. And, and one of their um, uh, style of drums that they made was a huge, they were huge drums. They were like, uh, I don't want to say twice as big as your, your average drum. But well, they, Sonar, they were, they're, it's a German company. Yeah. And they were. All uh, wood. All wood, solid wood. Yeah. And not that they were solid through and through, but the construction of the, right. the shells. And they were, um, they were, each individual one was a musical instrument in mm-hmm. itself. I think a lot of drums that are popular for some drummers, they sound good, they're easy to record mm-hmm. because they have a, might have a distinct sound about them. Those uh, sonors, they they had all kinds of overtones and yeah. they would ring and they were very African to yeah. me, you know. Yeah. And I know yeah. the last kit he had, you know, even like the uh, a lot of the way it was designed, uh, the paint job on it was like yes. African symbols and stuff. But yeah. uh, no, I mean it, it was like they were. It was a full sound. It was like a like. Like they were almost like when he played the toms, they were like timpanis. Yeah, you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah, they had a very full musical sound, which you might not realize depending the venue you were in and mm-hmm. the sound system that they had. Yeah. It did not always it was not an easy sound to capture mm-hmm. and uh, represent. Well, one one of the things about it, he really didn't need any miking on his drums, but he miked his drums and. Uh, uh, Put them in the in in the monitors, which, which that was one of the downsides of playing with Shannon because I remember like the first years I played with him and the first tours, which was you know again I was I was green to the road, man. The, the stage I, volume was brutal. Yeah, the stage volume volume was like, it you, you said it, it was brutal and it was just it was real hard to fight through that. But then again, I mean, I. It, it helped me to develop a, a, a full sound, you know, and, and work to try and get through that, you know, with still a quality sound too, you know. So I, I, instead of giving up and being like, oh, I, forget this old dude, you know, I, I use it as a way to, you know, advance my own playing too, make the music keep going. And uh, what was, uh, maybe you could talk a little bit about his, the way he played behind you. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I mean, you know, Shannon was, you know, he had acute ears, you know, he was always listening to what you play, but he didn't play like, uh, in the normal jazz way where, uh, the interplay was like, if you played a thing, he would be playing that same, 
He wasn't. He was. I don't think he was that kind of player, so to speak. He he really just set up a a, a fierce when he was going at it. That he is. He was he was setting up this fierce uh, uh, fullness that supported your know, every move in a sense, you know. And uh, uh, you know, if you was trying to play like Paul Desmond or something up in there, you was getting stepped on and. <laughs> You was buried. It wasn't none of that, you know. So you really had to attack the music, you know, in a certain way, you know. And, um, you know, uh, some of those songs I really, really dug a lot, like Gossip, you know. Mm. It was something about that song, man. When he start that beat, man, it was just like, yeah, this is... (laughs) Made you feel like he was in a rock band, you know. It was was really some new, really fresh energy, you know. But, um, uh, yeah, I mean, again, it was... He had some great symbols, great yeah. symbols. Yeah, peisty, um, peisty yeah. symbols. For drummers out there, sonor drums, peisty symbols. Yeah. So that, you know, the great symbols and, and a lot of colors that he was bringing out along with the, the big uh, drum kit, it was, it was an awesome sound. That's really what it is. It, it was an awesome sound that came off his drum. So, and it was, a, it was a big kit, yeah. two kick drums. Two kick drums, yeah, yeah, and uh, two floor toms. Yep. Only drummer I can think of in jazz, let's say, that would compare in a sense would have to be somebody like Tony Williams or or um, Billy Cobham. Yeah. You know, those only guys I could think of who came, you know, had their own groups, and that that kind of came from that kind of energy and and their own know. drum techs. Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> you don't want to be carrying all those yeah, drums yeah, by exactly. yourself. And um, I'm going to ask you a question that you might not have a direct answer to, but I'm curious. Um, the state of mind that Shannon would achieve when he was playing, it seemed hmm. like he uh, vacated in a certain hmm. sense. Yeah, yeah. I mean... <laughs> Shadow used to be like, you know, having his braids and his dreads, you know, and he would have like little coins and stuff like and beads and stuff. And so he would get into this very hypnotic uh, uh, place when he was playing. So he would be playing, you know, uh, and he always kind of kept like a um, uh, a lot, a lot going by instead of just, you know, just staying on the cymbals, he would you know, keep that pulse going with the, the double bass drum. So do 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 And then, uh, and, and he might have the same kind of things going across all the drums itself. And uh, so when he's doing this, his head's going from side to side, side to side, and these braids are hitting him in his face and stuff, and, you know, little coins and stuff is, you know, slashing his ears and everything. And it was just... It's, 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 it, I remember I used to just look at him when he was playing, and this was going. I was like thinking, like this guy's gonna put his eye out, <laughs> you, know? you know. But he wouldn't know it. He'd find out when the tune ended. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it would seem like he was in this uh, yeah, transformational. Was, yeah, state that of was mind. that was just normal for him, you know. So yeah, but uh, I think I think in uh, whether we were playing something soft or whether we were playing something. Uh, Loud, it still had that kind of um, hip hypnotic, you know, essence about it. You know, should we uh, shall we charm the beast? Oh yeah. yeah. You want to talk about uh, this 
song and this recording or whatever you might want to share about that? Uh, this is a little bit later. Mm -hmm. uh, well, this is the last CD I did with Shannon. Uh, this is, uh, uh, we did this after we came off off the road in uh, March of uh, April, I'm sorry, April uh, 87. And uh, I remember when he brought this song out, I didn't like it at all, man. And matter of fact, when we when we played it on the gigs, I didn't I didn't really dig it. I was just like, this is corny. <laughs> but but I, I was, I'm trying to remember. This was a uh, this was a frequently a an encore piece, wasn't it? I, I think so. I think so. And, but it was kind of it was so much on the other side of what he was doing, and I and I and I didn't I didn't particularly like the song. I kind of grew to like it though. Uh, so yeah, maybe we'll play so that one and, and another one. Let me pick yeah. that one and another one. Uh, well, try try that one and then try um, nothing beats a failure but a try. Yeah, song. that song had a couple different titles, didn't it? I think so. I think it did. Oh yeah, because uh, this CD was re. Welcome to the studio, Roger Kramer, Mr. Kramer. Welcome, welcome. <laughs> <laughs> Big smiles. I didn't know there was a whole party here. Oh, now, now there is. Well, I would have brought more. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, yeah, because this this record was re-released as uh, Talk Guy. So, but even that song, "Nothing Beats a Failure But a Try," I seem to I can't remember now. What. I think you're right. Shannon does another thing with him with uh, titles where a uh, shifting palette sometimes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But okay, let's uh, so let's go let's go to Texas. This was actually recorded in Texas. In uh, Fort Worth, Shannon's hometown, where he was born and where he spent his last few days, and um, recording in April of 1987, and it's um, it's the same band actually as uh, When Colors Play. So yeah. uh, once again, Masuja and Carrie Denegris on guitars, Zane Massey and our guest Eric Person on saxophones, John Moody on the bass, Ronald Shannon Jackson playing the drums. This is the Ronald Shannon Jackson Memorial Broadcast. He left us Saturday at the age of 73. We are on the air with you till 8.20 tomorrow morning. I'm Mitch Goldman, and this is Charming the Beast. It's Ronald Shannon Jackson Radio, WKCR. That's the way that one goes out. That from the album Texas. Nothing beats a failure but a try. How true is that? And we also heard uh, Charming the Beast, two pieces from the album Texas, Ronald Shannon Jackson, who we're remembering tonight, this memorial broadcast. He left us on just day before yesterday at age 73. I'm Mitch Goldman, and we've been talking to Eric Person. Also very happy to introduce Roger Kramer, who you might not know, as you do Eric for his music, but Roger is one of the people behind the scenes who makes stuff happen, and he was a I big... make a note of music. I thought you played Spoons. <laughs> Badly. <laughs> well, Roger... Not in time with Shannon, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah. You were a big part of making things happen for him. It was, I think it's so many ways I feel it was more important for me that I feel like I added to the process, but I suppose time will tell. Well, 
I met, Shan- I met Shannon. Should I tell the story? I'll tell, I'll tell yeah, my, please. Tell my, I don't know. How I met Ronald Shannon Jackson's I story. I don't think I ever heard it. In, in 1980, I was promoting concerts at the University of Michigan, my alma mater. And I was a big fan of the album Dancing in Your Head by Orn- Ornette Coleman and noticed a name. I think, it, I think it's listed as Shannon Jackson Drums. Mm. And just knew that the sound was different. He had this kind of African polyrhythmic rock drumming that propelled that album. And I got a brochure. It's a, it's a hugely driving sound if you don't know that that. Uh, recording. It's just that the drums are so different from anything Ornette had ever used before. He never really played against, you know, rock beats like uh, Dancing in Your Head. It was a revelation at the time. And um, a couple of years later, I got a, when I was promoting concerts, I got a brochure in the mail that said Ronald Shannon Jackson and the Decoding Society. And it had, I said, oh, I guess that's that guy from Dancing in Your Head. I really like his drumming. And then I got a phone call from this woman named Philippa Rendell. And uh, I said that I hadn't heard a note of music that INU was recorded but not out. I eventually got a test pressing of it before he he uh, came to Ann Arbor, and um, I had asked the, Phil- uh, on the about time label on right? the about time label, um, and I had there was this huge list of musicians on the brochure it was um, Billy Bang and Vernon Reed, Melvin Gibbs, Spired Lancaster, um, Charles Brackeen. Um, Erasto Vasconcelos. I, yeah, I think just you know the, 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 all the players that were on 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 eye on, on you. So I asked Philippa, you know, this sounds great. I'd love to have him come out. How much do you want? She quoted me a price. It was very reasonable. I said, and all these guys are going to come out. She's, oh, oh yeah, I think I think they will. <laughs> and I mean, I didn't really believe her because I knew a bit about logistics at the time. But I'm like, okay, okay, it sounds good. So we promoted the show. Um, they showed up in a Cadillac. Oh, really? In <laughs> Michigan? In Michigan. Uh, we block booked it with Tim Carr at the Walker Arts Center. Yeah. And um, he actually passed away last year in, un, under not particularly great circumstances in, mm. in Thailand. Wow. Uh, and uh, it was Shannon, Vernon Reed, Melvin Gibbs, and Bayard Lancaster. Oh, really? And um, it was piece. just a straight up quartet. And it was so devastating. The show was so powerful. And everything was recorded. So somewhere at the University of Michigan is a recording of that show at WOM, the campus radio station. Hunt it down, Mitch. Yeah. No, no. And it was, we were just like, you felt like you were splattered against the back of the room. It was so powerful. And Vernon Reed is this young, you know, exciting young guitar player. And it was just, it was incredible. And I had was working at the campus radio station, had interviewed Shannon during the day, made him late to the show because I got so involved in the whole thing. The show was incredible. And then I was working at a hotel restaurant, was my sort of, you know, my my job. And the next day he was staying at that hotel and I served Shannon breakfast. <laughs> and chatted him up and, we're, you know, talking, such a nice man. And, you know, what are your plans after college? I said, well, I think I'm going to move to New York City. That's where I really want to go. And he goes, well, if you do, you should, why don't you look me up? Mm-hmm. So uh, about a year later, I was in New York City. I was, you know, I'd moved there maybe a year and a half later. And I did look him up. And I went up to his house on 87th Street, sat down and chatted. And he's so warm and inviting. And he said in so many words, I was just signed to Antilles Records. And I really need a manager. Would you like to do that? 
kidding? <laughs> that sounds amazing. And and I did. I didn't know anything except for promoting concerts in a college town. But Shannon allowed me to learn the business. I rode in the van. I set up his drums. I booked the gigs. Um, I brought my then college friend and and uh, became my partner into the into the mix. And we we did all this stuff. And I went to Europe and I traveled in the United States and. And through that process, and the reason from in my own life Shannon was so important is that I met Vernon Reed, spent a lot of time with him, who is still my dear friend, and I ended up Vernon Reed's manager. Hmm. And Vernon Reed formed the Vernon Reed Band, and then Vernon Reed's Living Color, then Living Color, and the rest, at least for me, was a you know a huge sort of you know um, launch into the stratosphere of the music business. Which... And and you stayed friends and involved in business with Shannon. Oh, all absolutely. Through. Absolutely. I always wanted him to call me if he needed help. I'm an attorney, and uh, I've tried to help him periodically th- throughout his you know, career after that, and just considered him family and a friend and a mentor and someone who believed in me uh, at, a, at a, you know, I was like 20, 22, 23 years old at a, at a young age, and um, always valued it. I cannot imagine what my life would have been without that you know, literally the fulcrum for everything was was Shannon. And just to digress into another thing that I've been thinking since he passed, this is a man who represents the purest of uh, sort of artistic aspirations. That's all he was about. It's all, he was frustrated he never made as much money as he wanted to make, didn't get the recognition he wanted to, you know, thought he deserved and did deserve. But he was only interested in playing the art, what he wanted to play, when he wanted to play, wanted people to appreciate it. He was uncompromising absolutely to this very last breath. And Literally, I deeply yeah. admire that. I do too. I, uh, <laughs> 97.6% of what you just said, I feel like you're reading my script, Roger. <laughs> Except, of course, that you lived it a hair before I did. But the story is remarkably similar. And I, I want to get back to some of that in a bit, but uh, something I have to say that you sort of touched on, you and I both spent some time with him. He was in New York in the hospital and uh, they were treating, he was getting chemotherapy for the leukemia, which did not uh, work out the way the medical community had hoped, but uh, it actually did give you and me an opportunity to spend some time with him and Vernon and uh, some other people who made it through. And uh, he was astonishingly forthcoming and talked about things that he'd never spoken about with me. He talked about, <laughs> talked about everything. He talked about musicians that he never, you know, I, I don't remember him, I don't remember ever hearing him listen, you know, walking into his house and he's, you know, playing some like, uh, oh, I got some Coltrane playing or whatever, any, ever. Um, but, oh, you know. oh yeah, and he 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 didn't want us to play anybody's melodies like on soundcheck. Right. If you if you weren't playing his melodies, he was screaming at you. What are you playing that stuff for? Play my melody. You need to know my music better. <laughs> well, he among the things that he said, and you just reminded me of this. He made a point of saying that how important it always was to him that how important the audience was how important the audience's experience and that every drop of anything he had to give them, he had a duty 
to impart. And I think I knew that already, but I don't remember him ever saying that. Yeah. And that's, I think that's very different from a lot of artists. I mean, you hear people, you see interviews with artists all the time. They're like, well, I've got, I'm, I've got, I'm doing my thing, man. I'm in my head. I'm doing it. And if mm. people want to come along on the ride, that's great. That was not what Shannon was saying at all. And I don't see that. I see that completely at a, of a piece with everything he ever did. I, I think that his um, performance aesthetic and the power that he always played with, you know, sort of was the, the ultimate um, indicator of that attitude. You go see him play, and he played his you-know-what off every single time. We, At any age, he was and thrilling. Just yeah. a, you know, as a as a physical being, as an athlete, to watch that guy play was incredible. Yes, yeah, it was a, an athletic performance. And you, another moment you reminded me of in 1987, uh, the tour that he did in anticipation of that recording that we just heard a little bit ago. You and I were on that mm-hmm. tour. <laughs> misbegotten yeah. ride through uh, the nooks and crannies of the European continent. And one of those shows, I think it was in Uppsala, Sweden. And we got there, and it was this little club. It was like a little bar, and there was nothing. There was no equipment. There was no crew. There was nobody to set anything up. And a guy, we, you know, like, made every effort to find. We had a name of one person, and he finally showed up. He's like, oh, yeah, 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 no, it's going to be fine. And it didn't seem like they'd done anything to promote the show. It was a miserable, wet, cold march mm. in Sweden. And um, Shannon was absolutely resolute that, you know, every bit, I don't know if you remember this, mm. him talking to the band, and the, every single thing we've got to give, we've got to pour it out tonight. You don't know who's going to be in that mm. audience. There might mm. be one person, that one person might be the person who needs to hear this music. Mm. And uh, he was, so he, there, that's one time when I do remember him saying something about that. Do you remember that, Eric? Uh, I don't. Or maybe you had other experiences like that. Uh, but, but, I mean, it was part of, I'm, I'm just thinking the three of us are here in this room, and we've all been thinking about Shannon a lot lately. And um, it's one of the things that's sad to me is that uh, nobody who, did not have the opportunity to spend time with him as we did will ever know what that was like. And that was, aside, off the bandstand, it was a very (laughs) singular thing. It wasn't like anybody else I've ever met, the kinds of things that he would say and the the kind of person that he was. And... uh, Relay the stories off mic, I think. Well, most of them are (laughs) definitely not fit for broadcast. There's the 99.73% that we can't tell. There was that monitor mixer in Madison, Wisconsin. Let me tell you (laughs) what he said about that guy. Oh, oh yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, yeah. People who who did not live up to the high standard were, were... Laid waste to. Yeah, that happened. That happened. And, uh, but I don't know if there's any way we could convey that. I mean, maybe we're doing that anyway. But if you guys have any particular stories about just moments or the way that Shannon, uh, the distinct, unique way that he presented himself. But it'll, it'll emerge. It'll emerge. We'll, we'll chat it out. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, well, you had a, 
You had a particular selection you wanted to hear, Roger. Yeah, I wanted to hear Revelation March uh, that uh, James Bloodomer with one of the great bands of life and, uh, and a big hit on my college radio station. How, it's been a while since you've done a radio show. Just a little bit. Do you want to tell us what we're going to hear? Uh, Revelation March, recorded in 1980, featuring James Bloodomer on guitar and vocals, David Murray, tenor sax, Oliver Lake alto sax, Aludar trumpet, and Ronald Shannon Jackson on drums, rocking his brains out. We are remembering Ronald Shannon Jackson, and this is his memorial broadcast, and... We'll be on the air with you till 8.20 tomorrow morning. I'm Mitch Goldman. I'm very happy to have Roger Kramer in the studio with us and Eric Person. And here's some music Shannon made with blood. WKCR, FM, New York. Music from James Bloodomer featuring <laughs> inescapably Ronald Shannon Jackson on the drums. And we are remembering Shannon Jackson tonight. All other programming, by the way, is preempted. So if you're tuning in to hear regular program, regular scheduled programs, they are not being broadcast tonight. We have set aside from 3 p.m. today till 8.20 tomorrow morning, playing nothing but the music of Ronald Shannon Jackson and sharing the sad news with you that he left this planet on Saturday at the age of 73 after a very difficult bout with leukemia. And I can tell you that I... Uh, spent quite a bit of time with him in the hospital. He was it was a very, very difficult uh, thing for anybody to contend with, and he dealt with it, I thought, with tremendous equanimity. He was um, he was very clear-eyed about exactly what was going on, the challenge that he faced, and um, he in his way that uh, you'd see things, you'd see, if you were hanging out with Shannon, you you were going to Shannon World. There is a way that he was gonna, things were gonna come through him and come out a little differently than the way you might expect to see them, but there'd be a, a truthfulness about his vision that you could not escape. And that was kind of how this was. He was, um, all he wanted to do was play. All he wanted to do was get back to his drums and play. And he said something really interesting to me and Vernon. We were there that uh, he said, you know, I just figured something out. I just, and it's this, once you figure it out, he said, you know how this is? He said this to me, and I, I kind of was like, I kind of know what you mean, but I kind of don't. He said, you figure out something you work at, and you're trying to do it, and you can't do it, and all of a sudden you can do it. And it's so simple. Like, why was, did this take such this tremendous effort? And he goes, and I just figured out something like that. And I, I just want to get back to the drums and play. He didn't say specifically what it was, but um, that was kind of where he was at. He was uh, incredibly open and positive and warm, which he wasn't always in years gone by. Eric and Roger, you guys remember, there were times when he could get incredibly dark and contentious and uh, there would not be that kind of open door but he was very very open and it was I know it was a not easy for him going through the stuff he, he'd he went through valued the people who he had mentored whether they're musicians or us business guys and the relationships and the family that he had created around him when I decided 
1984 that I was going to get a law degree. Basically, I was chickening out. I was really frustrated with the music business. I wasn't mm. making much money. And I'm like, eh, okay. I, you know, so I went to night school. I started going to law school at night and mm. told Shannon I was going to go to law school. And he basically read me the riot act. He was like, he, he said, you're... You're chicken. <laughs> with called, another word attached to it. Begins with an S, ends with right. a T. You're, you're chicken. You're, he was mad. He, I think he felt abandoned, and I, and I didn't disagree with him, but I had already sort of launched myself on that path. And I kind of had a long period of time where we weren't communicating, and he came back and apologized hmm. to me several years later. And it was incredibly meaningful to me that he had done that, and we never fell out of touch after that. That's great. Wouldn't dare fall out of touch with that guy. Yeah. And I can't believe he's gone. It just blows me away. Let's talk about his work ethic, which was, you know, I think people think that things, you know, you hear people talk about artists and use words like inspiration and, uh, you know, uh, gift, and which all may be true, but having worked with him and watched him up close, the diligence is astounding to me. Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, we did a lot of rehearsing for like one gig. I mean, that's I, I mean, I remember that. I mean, but uh, I, I guess and, and, and Shannon wrote a lot of lot of music. You know, he had a lot of melodies that he would have in his book and in. And every gig, it wasn't like, okay, like the last gig, we did this. I want to clean that up a little bit and, you know, have those songs a little better. Or are we going to take this one out? And we, it was like we were, we were like learning a whole new book for every gig, you know. So I, I, I was a lot of times because I liked certain songs a lot, you know, like Sweet Orange, which I had have this great intro thing on, uh, on When Colors Play. That song stuck around a little bit, but some other things I liked, I'd be like, "Why is it? Why is this guy taking this out of the book?" You know, I want to, I want us to develop <laughs> this. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. But sure. he had so many things that he was kind of getting to. So yeah, that work work ethic always played into that. We did a lot of rehearsing. I'm sure he also, for every hour he spent with you guys, there's probably however many more that he did on his own. Oh yeah, because he 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 uh, rented that that studio, so he had to justify. He wasn't just gonna rent it and not go up there. So I think you were he, rehearsing at the music building. Oh yeah, yeah, right. yeah exactly. I he, think he was there every, probably every day. Every night he was there. Yeah, every, he, every night he would go in the evening just to play, and mm -hmm. he would play till the sun came up every yeah. night, every yeah. single night. He would play probably a good eight hours. You, you know what I liked? One thing I liked about playing in that building is like we would be rehearsing. And, uh, you know, it's on 8th Avenue. And at that time, it's like, you know, it was the, the garment district at its height, you know. Or so it's depth, like, as the case may yeah, be. Yeah, you know, it's like it's a lot of noise, people pushing, you know, furs down the street right, in the summertime, right. everything. Yeah. And, I, and I always dug how we, we had the windows open sometimes and, and the sound is going out the windows and ricocheting off the, 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 the uh, building across the way. And Yeah. Plus, yeah. also, I mean, it was a great kind of magic New York moment. It was. There were every band. And every band was playing yeah. in there. I remember yeah. being in Shannon in a rehearsal or maybe it was a, no, it was a meeting or something, you know, getting ready to go on a, on a, on a, on a on tour, loading gear, and it's quiet. Yeah. And you hear next door, someone's playing. I was like, man, they're, 
sounds like a really good version of Billy Idol song. <laughs> like, oh, that's yeah, Billy Idol. <laughs> oh, right. oh, 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 yeah. you're making me think. Uh, 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 T.M. Stevens, his, sure. his room was next door to ours. So we always heard him doing his, you know, yeah. bass yeah. stuff. You know, it's great. I remember riding up the elevator. The elevator. Right, the elevator. The elevator. <laughs> and, and so this is like 1982 or so. And remember, I just have this memory of riding up the elevator and some guy goes, he's listening to his music and he's freaking out and he puts his whatever, you know, Walkman headphones on mm-hmm. me. And I'd never heard anything like it. Turns out it was the Bad Brains. Oh, yeah. Wow, what the hell is this? (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, yeah, that elevator, I don't know. This was the age when any problem could be fixed with a $20 schmear to the uh, elevator inspector. That thing would just like just about fall off the cables every I, time I like you got I like the attitude it. everyone had in the elevator. <laughs> yeah. it's like people were just way too cool for their own yeah. good in that building. But Shannon, Shannon got tremendous respect in that building from oh, people yeah. you would never expect. He's kind of like the godfather or something. Everybody knew, even people who had no idea what his music was about, they just gave it up to him. They just knew that there was something going on there that was really worthy. Hmm. Is that is that still the music building? I, do I think not it is. Know. I think, I think it is. is. I yeah. think it's still a rehearsal building. Hmm. I think it's still called the music building. Yeah. It's still Third eighth Ave between thirty eighth and thirty ninth. Yeah. yeah. And the pizza place across the street. I think he was paying about eight hundred dollars a month for yeah. that room. Man, that wow. thing is That's probably a lot a, of money. Yeah. For then. Okay. Yeah. But now. Woo. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well. What would it be now? Yeah. I don't yeah. know. It's probably more recording studios or maybe more permanent mm. situations. I, mean, mm-hmm. I don't know. But um, we're talking about Ronald Shannon Jackson, who passed away on Saturday. He was 73. He'd been, um, you know, one of the things that's striking about this, we're surrounded by all of his recordings and most of them were created over a relatively short span of time. He really was very late getting started as a recording artist, and uh, I don't think his first recording under his own name came out until he was... It's always easy to figure out, because Shannon was born in 1940. Right, right. So I started working with him in 1982. He was 42 years old, Mm -hmm. signed to Antilles Records, and his career was just getting going, really. He'd been really sort of laboring pretty much in an obscurity. He was on a couple of albums, a Charles Tyler yeah. album mm-hmm. and... Uh, Ornette. And Ornette. But before Ornette, not, I- much, not much for mm-hmm. all his time in, the, yeah. in New York and the touring with Ray Bryant and all that stuff. It's just he did not get that recognition until sort of post-Dancing in Your Head and he sort of used that sound as a springboard for his own yeah. very unique mm-hmm. blend. He told me one time... And I don't have any reason not to believe it's true that uh, Jimi Hendrix asked him to play Woodstock with him. Why wouldn't he? Why wouldn't he? Wouldn't right. he? Wouldn't he? <laughs> and Shannon said that his drums were in hock at the time. He said no. Oh, wow. Shannon was not in good shape in 1969. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He was not, not really. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wasn't really right. But um, he certainly did have some great stories <laughs> about what he referred to as the nightlife in New York at that time. And uh, I'm not going to repeat them on the air. <laughs> not that one. N- not 
that one. <laughs> <laughs> but he lived a full life, and he had he, he just had incredible stories. It was uh, really, really just a, a treat to be around him. And, and uh, uh, for all of his cool character, there was just the warmth that underlay that that was uh, really just made it so unique and and compelling speaking of stories you make me think uh that first tour i did with shannon uh we we the last gig i don't know did you book that tour um 19 i don't know if you all had any left left over probably i mean i was i remember i mean we knew each other Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. uh but it was sort of in that transition as i as mitch was coming in and i was Right, right. Going out. Your first tour. Yeah. No, your so first tour, I think, was... Probably, probably yeah, under, 84, under April under of 80. auspices, yeah. Yeah. Well, the last gig we did was in Kansas City, and the guy... place was packed. Guy did not have the money. Ah, oh. Max Dane. Max <laughs> was your tour manager. He was my friend from college. That the guy who didn't have the money, but no. he had the car? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Go That's on. a great story. <laughs> but, but, but then he wanted him hiring that guy. For, as a roadie in Europe. He did? Yeah. I think that they liked each other. The story is, Shannon did the gig. I don't know what we did where we didn't have our deposit, and we let him go and play the show anyway. Right. Right. We had the deposit, but not the back end, and the show didn't sell well. You're wondering what happened at that gig in Kansas City. All right, well, that is the way that uh, recording rolled out. But I'll tell you the rest of the story. Come meet me over at part two of this one. Once again, October 21st, 2013, 2013.10.21. Eric Person and Roger Kramer on Ronald Shannon Jackson. Find me at part two of two. You'll also get the rest of that set from Grant Park in Chicago. All right, see you over there.